This is episode number 242 of the Rising Man podcast with Joe Hawley. There is life beyond the game. What's up, Rising Man family? Jetty Azuma here with another episode of the Rising Man podcast. Without further ado, let me tell you about my guest today. My guest is Joe Hawley. Joe is a former NFL football player who started in 54 games and played for eight seasons in the NFL. After feeling the call to walk away from the game he spent his entire life pursuing greatness at, he was left feeling empty and without purpose. He's now on a mission to support the collective paradigm shift by supporting others in their own individual journey of self-discovery. Joe is an entrepreneur, trained facilitator and author. He's the founder of the Heart Collective and Haven, a regenerative farm and retreat center 90 minutes outside of Austin, Texas. He's the host of Life Beyond the Game podcast where he brings on former elite athletes and he's a transformational speaker and passionate about working with former elite athletes through the retreat work that he does. This was an amazing episode. I was so excited to connect with Joe, find out that he lives right here in Austin, and also just get a glimpse into what the life of a professional athlete and post-professional athlete looks like. So Joe shared with us what it's like to be in a professional men's locker room. I was really curious about what the experience is on the inside of that. What's what's it really look like behind the scenes compared to what everybody think go, thinks goes on in those locker rooms. We also talked about medicine work and how it's making its way into the professional sports world. Shout out to the New York Jets and Aaron Rodgers. We, we mentioned him and his journey with being in the public spotlight with his darkness retreats and ayahuasca and just what the implications of that are for the sports community. We also discussed what led Joe away from professional sports and down a path of deeper purpose. And last but not least, his relationship with rites of passage and transformational ceremony and how that's feeding into this new chapter in the story of Joe Hawley. So without further ado, Joe Hawley. All right, Rising Man family, I've got a very special guest coming in today, Mr. Joe Hawley coming in. We're Austin neighbors. Didn't even know it, man. Welcome to the show. Didn't even know it, man. What a gift. What a gift. I just love new connections more than anything, man. And just talking before the show, just the amount of alignment that we we have. I'm excited to see where this connection takes us, man. For sure, man. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to your team who told you about this podcast and this opportunity, because I can already tell that there's a lot of congruency there for both of us. Yeah. Shout out. Shout out. I'm glad. I mean, having a team's the best, man. Can't do it alone. A lot of a lot of good work to be done. And yeah, the people behind the scenes are are really what make everything click in my life. I'm sure you feel the same. Absolutely. So I always start off with this question, man. So you're probably not ready for it, but here we go. In your opi- opinion and experience, what does it mean to be a man? Oh, wow. Yeah. Hitting me oh, with the right to it. The, the bombshell right off. What does it mean to be a man? Man, what a great question. It's interesting. I, you know, in our society and culture, the idea of what I, I, I learned what a, what a man was and didn't have a ton of really great role models. Uh, my father wasn't very wasn't very present. I think this is a common story between a lot of people from kind of our, our generation. Is my, my dad wasn't a bad dude. My dad wasn't uh, abusive in the, like a physically abusive, but you know, and he's doing the best that he could, and he sacrificed a lot for our family. But he just wasn't very present. Mm. And as a as a kid, as a son, 
Uh, I, w- I wanted more than anything for my dad to share his life experience with me. I wanted to, I wanted to know what the world was like and, uh, he, he, he wasn't, wasn't able to. And, uh, luckily I, I joined football when I was a freshman in high school and that, that journey, I, I really learned about what it means to be a man from a lot of different examples, some good, some bad, uh, and got to get out in the world and really experience the, the world that my dad didn't really, you know, have the ability to, to hold space for. And so to answer your question, as I've gone on this journey, it's been, it's been an unfolding of, of really deep self-discovery. And it's such a powerful question because I think it's, it's something that continues to unfold. And to me, it's, it's not necessarily who you are that makes you a man. It's, it's how you show up. It's the frequency, the energy that, that you hold. And, you know, what comes up to for me is this ability to be present, this ability to be to be this, this, to hold this space and to be present. And in that presence is where, where love is really able to shine through, you know, and a lot of mystical teachings, they talk about loving presence. I believe it's what Jesus embodied. It's what the Buddha embodied. And it's, it's a frequency. And when you're around it, you can feel it. You know, when, when you, when you walk into a room and there's a, there's a man there that doesn't have anything to prove but he's got, he's got this aura about him. And you can tell it's, it's, he's very present, present with himself, present with the experience of life that's unfolding around him. And to get to that level of presence requires a, a deep excavation of self and a, mm-hmm. uh, a journey, a pilgrimage, a, a quest into the depths of, of who you are to, to find that, that deeper truth. And, um, you know, that's the journey I'm on. And I think that's a journey that, that has been really, lacking in our society and culture and you know luckily there's there's a resurgence of of men like you and and me who have gone on that journey and are really passionate about providing those types of experiences and spaces for more men to really learn to embody what it what it means to be a man um yeah yeah, you know let me uh, let me chime in there for a second because i i love your answer i i get this response, everyone says something a little bit different. And I just really like the way that you approached it. What, what really reflected back to me was my own experience of growing up with a father who was great father, treated me wonderfully, gave me a wonderful example for many parts of what it means to be a man in the world. But similar to what I heard in your story, I felt like I got an incomplete picture of what it looked like. It's kind of like I saw the show, but I didn't get to see the behind the scenes, which I wanted all along without knowing it. And I think a lot of us who are fortunate enough to have our fathers present in our lives and present in largely a healthy way, we enter into the world as men, not knowing what our dads actually went through in order to provide and take care of and keep their temper under control and not blow up on the family when things got hard and make sure everyone felt safe and supported. And that's the part that I think moving forward, it's it's really helpful to give our, our boys as they're getting ready for life, this, okay, well, here's, here's what's going on behind the scenes. And to me, that's where rites of passage and initiation comes in. That's the role of fathers and uncles is to really let young men know, Hey, this is what you got to be ready for when you go out into the world. Cause otherwise we're just wildly unprepared. Like, Oh, this is, it's crazy. And it's hard out here. I wish someone would have told me that before I went out in the world by myself. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like our parents, you know, and I know you're a parent. I'm I'm a, a new parent. I have a two and a half year old. And 
there's this natural idea of like, I want to protect my kids from the world. I want to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of, you know, as I've studied some of the stuff and I'm, I'm just starting to get into a deeper understanding, but, you know, a lot of indigenous cultures that had rites of passage experiences built into their societies and their, you know, the, the way they raise their children is, you know, for the first 10 to 12 years of, of a, a kid's life, they, they allow them to be in that lover archetype, be connected to the mother, be nurtured and supported. And then there's a transitional phase of, okay, now you got to go through this rite of passage, this experience that's going to facilitate or in a, in a safe container, some type of death process where you have to confront um, the challenges of the world and really show up and embody what it takes to be out in the world. And, you know, you go through that process and then you come back to the tribe and everybody treats you different. And so going through that whole process is really powerful. And we just, we lack that in our society and culture. So our, our parents want to keep us safe. They know how crazy the world is. They've gone through their own experiences. They don't want their kids naturally because they love them to go through any type of challenge. And because we lack that 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 facilitated, safe kind of challenge that we can cultivate where they can confront these things without having to go into the world, but kind of recreate it so that they can be prepared for the world because we lack that then there's, you know, it's, it's not just the the kids that, that don't have that experience, but the parents kind of hang on to that role of being parents, which creates some interesting dynamics as, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. And you know, I, I don't want to go too far down this, this direction. Cause I know we could go into this the whole rest of the episode, but I really believe it has a lot to do with our relationship with death that many of us growing up in the Western worlds who have this first world experience that's much more privileged than most, most humans on the planet, we're so far removed from the process of death, which is the guarantee. If there's any guarantee, there's the guarantee of death on the, at the end of all of this. And so the, even the fact that most people have never been around a, a person who actually, who, who died, how many people have actually witnessed and been present for somebody transitioning into death? It's, it's so uncommon. And when we're talking about these rites of passages, we're really talking about a ceremonial death and rebirth going to that edge of death. All of these ceremonies, whether you're fasting from food, water, sleep, something else, it's, it's bringing you closer to that veil of death to source the wisdom that's at that outer edge. So the fact that we don't endeavor or encounter that edge very often means that we're, we're, we're lacking tapping into that wisdom. At least that's what I've learned from my teachers and the way I've come to see it over the years. It's mm, beautiful, man. It's ringing so true in my heart. And I, I think it's so fascinating that, you know, just having my first kid a couple of years ago and, and experiencing uh, the birth. And then you're speaking about the death, these two biggest really experiences that humans go through are so, you know, veiled from our experience. It's, it's like our society and culture tries to protect us. And the fact that my first birth I witnessed was, you know, my own son being born and then like how transformative that experience is to be so connected to life and this new, like an old, like, again, back to the old, like tribal ways, like you were around these births that happened all the time. It was a tribal experience, but we put it behind these closed curtains and same thing with death. I think there's different cultures like over in India where death is honored and it's not like we don't try to keep people alive in tubes and they they do ceremonies and they have a, a transitional phase and it's a part of life. And, you know, one of the things when I was when I was walking away from f- football after eight years, I read a book and they did these studies on asking, you know, terminally ill patients or, or end of life care, kind of older people uh, about 
you know, the, the end of life and what they were confronting. And that was a very powerful experience for me to really feel into the impermanence of life. There's going to come a day when I am approaching my death, if I'm lucky enough to make it to, to old age, which we've created a an environment where we don't really have to confront uh, that many dangers on a daily basis. And a lot of us do get to these points where we're confronting death. And, you know, for those that never think about death and the impermanence of life, they never really fully live. And mm. so to, 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 to first die, you, you can't live until you first die. And there's a lot of really teaching and ancient wisdoms and ancient teachings that, that say that. And it's about this psychological death, this, this letting go of the story of who you think you are and who you think you need to be and, and coming to the truth of, of who you actually are, which is a deep essence that can only be found from really confronting those, those parts of yourself. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. I think for, for me, confronting my death and the imprints of life has really allowed me to be more present and be more, uh, you know, pursue my passions and my purpose, knowing that I don't have an unlimited amount of time. Oh, so good, man. Uh, have you ever heard of Steven Jenkinson? Does that name ring a bell to you? I haven't. No. All right. Bookmark. I'll, I'll, I'll message you later too. He's been on the cool. show a couple of times. Like as far as just somebody to give a complete opposite end of the spectrum perspective on death, it's unparalleled. So I'll, I'll make sure I connect you with him. Uh, cool. But making a little bit of a pivot back to your professional career as a football player. Let's just go back to that, right? Different season of life. Clearly you're in a different chapter now, but you said you got so much from being a professional player and, and just in those locker rooms. There, I think there's a lot of assumptions that those of us who are not professional athletes make about what the locker room culture is like. That's even something that's spoken about is just locker room talk. So what, what is it really like in there? How much of that is real based on what we perceive and how much of it is also these real men, real experiences, real fathers, how much of that is happening in those, in those rooms? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's one of those things that as I was going through it, it, it was something I was a part of since I was 12 years old. So it's, it's like, I didn't know anything outside of that experience. Uh, and now looking back, um, obviously going on this deeper journey of healing and self-discovery, I can see that, you know, it's just a microcosm for the kind of greater systemic issues we deal with kind of our, you know, lack of healthy masculine role models in our society and culture. And, you know, as far as my experience, it was like, it was a brotherhood. Like I, I really loved it. And, um, you know, there wasn't a ton of space for, uh, understanding like my emotional landscape and emotional awareness, but it's not because it was the locker room or football. Like, I don't think any real men in our society and culture have those tools. Um, yeah. and, and, but I'm really grateful for, for the brotherhood, you know, and, and, you know, I think the cool thing, and we spoke a little bit to this before the show started of, you know, the experiential process and the rites of passage is about going through a shared experience that is really challenging, that brings people together in a very powerful way. And one thing that was one of the biggest challenges walking away from football was that loss of community, because going through those, you know, really these the training camps and some of the most challenging, physically challenging, emotionally challenging, mentally challenging experiences of my life. Uh, the reason I was able to push myself past my limits and then some is because I was doing it for something greater than myself. And I was doing it for the men next to me. And some of these guys, if I met them on the streets, like I, I probably wouldn't be friends with them. Mm -hmm. But because we went through this shared experience where we we bled together, we cried together, we pushed ourselves to the limits together, we we wanted to achieve greatness together. It created this, like vibrating right now, talking about this is really cool. But it's like, 
I'm going to do everything for the man next to me. And it's because I see him pushing himself past his limits. And, you know, that's why it's, it's about the heart. Like when you can, when you see somebody's heart and what they're made of, what they're, what they're capable of outside of their own perceived limits of what they think is possible, it, it, it inspires me to push myself past my limits. And that, that bonds that are created within that is so profound and so powerful uh, it's one of the things I deeply miss. And I think if you ask any athlete, it's like, what do you miss the most? It's the camaraderie, it's the brotherhood, it's the community. And it's what I'm you know, really passionate about recreating in my life is, is these opportunities for people to feel that energy. It's what I've experienced in different plant medicine ceremonies, because it's a very similar thing. It's when I go through a ceremony and it's really, really challenging. I'm confronting kind of deeper aspects of self and going through the depth of, of some of these deeper spiritual challenges. And I see somebody else doing that. And then we go into that processing circle. It's like, I, I have this deep love for everybody because there's a respect of the courage it takes to step into that. And I think the same thing with rites of passage, right? It's somebody that's willing to go to the edge of confronting their own their own death, their own mortality. There's, there's a courage that's required for that. And it's one of the things when I see that in others, it's, it's one of the things that inspires me the most. And so, yeah, the, the, the locker room was, it was everything. It was everything. And mm. it was a lot of fun too. I mean, like we... We had like a ping pong table in there, so we do like ping pong table tournaments and and uh, yeah, it was just like a lot of a lot of goofing around, a lot of fun, and then you know a lot of a lot of focus as well. And so it's just this like family dynamic. Yeah, which I, I think that all of us, uh, especially boys and men, I think we're we're born into the world with that instinctual sense of wanting to do things together, even just mm -hmm. in general terms, right? Because what I hear you describe, I've heard. I, I'm not a military veteran, but I've spoken to and know a lot of military vets and they speak about something similar, just the absence of that brotherhood and camaraderie, the, what looking at what bonds us and keeps us together versus what, what makes us different. I think every boy and man has that woven into our DNA because our ancestors did it for so long to take care of our families and our communities. So I really love shining some light on that perspective. Cause especially nowadays it's with social media and you watch these, these young guys just getting into trouble early on in their careers. And clearly it's their the moment or the responsibility is just bigger than they're ready for. I think it's easy to focus on that stuff because it grabs headlines. And obviously I know it's a big part of your calling is to um, support if I'm not mistaken to support athletes post-career, right? Yeah, it's something I'm super passionate about. Um, you know, I, I I started a community called the Heart Collective like two and a half years ago. We've since relaunched it uh, to focus on on serving you know high impact entrepreneurs, leaders, creators, visionaries. Um, but I'm still very passionate. And I have a couple side projects. I, you know, I'm opening a a retreat center. I have 72 acres, 90 minutes outside of Austin, which I'm sure we can jam out about. Um, and I, I plan on building you know more of a, a a program for elite athletes to go on this journey of deeper healing and self-discovery because it's such a it's not just a loss of community it's a loss of identity it's a loss of purpose but what i found that's really exciting you know within my own experiences as i've learned about myself you know when you're in the nfl i'm surrounded by these high achieving high performing individuals it's normal for me getting out in the real world it's like oh wow like I'm a very special human, my abilities and my capabilities and what I'm able to accomplish has been so driven into this singular thing. But if I can drive that energy and focus into maybe greater impact or building a, a business that's going to you know support others, my ability to learn, to grow, to handle failure, all really special. And so what I find is a lot of elite athletes, 
you know, they, they struggle with that transition because there's no real resources out there for them. You know, I think the, 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 the resources that the NFL provides is, is really you know, quite laughable and, and, and embarrassing. But again, it's, it's part of the kind of greater systemic issues that we face is there's no real space for these guys to feel the depth of grief that comes with losing such a massive part of their identity. And yeah. there's a lot of emotional healing, psychosomatic healing, and purpose isn't just trying to find another job. And, you know, the NFL is like, their resources like, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll help you build a resume and get, get you a corporate job thinking that, that if they have something to do, they're going to be fine. But as you know, there's a deep reservoir of unconscious material that needs to be looked at, needs to be felt, needs to be processed. And I'm really passionate about building and facilitating those types of spaces so guys can get around other guys who have had shared experiences. You know, it's, it's again, it's hard to feel safe enough to process what someone in that realm is going through if, if they're around other people that haven't gone through that. So I'm really passionate about bringing together elite athletes who have gone through shared experiences, getting them in a room together so they feel that that sense of community and then being able to process and feel and connect uh, with the grief and, and, you know, the letting go of, of, of such a massive part of their identity. And I think that is where real deeper meaning, deeper purpose is, is really found. It's not about who you are or what you do. It's about, about what's, what's on your heart and how do you, how do you pursue what's on your heart to make the world a better place and be of service? Oh man, you and I got some work to do together, man. I'll say, I'll save that for offline, but wow. Just <laughs> My the, man. the, the clarity around, uh, cause what you're describing for an athlete coming to the end of their career, regardless of how long that is or how, what their career resume looks like, that, that's a rite of passage. It is a death. It's a death of an identity as a professional athlete. And whether or not they continue to stay relevant or in the public eye as a professional athlete or former professional athlete, there's a transition into another stage of life that must be honored, that must have space for that new identity to be revealed. So a lot more to say about that, man. I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, I'll, I'll admit to this now. I'm a lifelong New York Jets fan. I was born into it. I didn't choose it, but you know, thank you, dad, for giving me the gift and the curse of being a New York Jets fan. <laughs> we got Aaron Rodgers now, so maybe it's our year. Um, I speak, I bring that up because I'm noticing that the medicine work is starting to make its way into the professional sports world. And obviously I mentioned Aaron Rodgers is one of those polarizing figures for lack of better terms. Who's, who's making a stand for that with his, the darkness retreat. I know he's homies with Aubrey Marcus out here. And then also, um, publicly admitting to participating in an ayahuasca ceremony. So I'm interested to hear your perspective on medicine work making its way or crossing barriers into the professional sports and just the entertainment world totally yeah it's it's really interesting how these plants are coming online in a very big way and there's there's definitely a reason why i i see them as as allies as teachers and they're they're coming forth to support us in this great awakening this great paradigm shift we're moving through and i think it's going to integrate into every little crevice of our society and culture and it's really cool to witness and you know aaron like you know, i haven't connected with him personally yet i know it's only a matter of time and i'm really proud of him to, mm -hmm. to be one of the best athletes in the world one of the faces of the nfl and to speak out about uh you know such a fringe topic uh, especially with you know something that's perceived as like as like drugs uh he, he was taking on the entire nfl and you know, if someone like me or someone a little bit lower level athlete in there, uh, sure he would have been 
released or cut and just like wash the hands clean. But because he's a two-time, three-time MVP, one of the best players in the league, you know, they didn't really have any like form of action that they could have taken. And they said, well, it's not on the drug testing protocol. So what can we really do? Which I think is really beautiful. And, you know, I think, I think I'm sure a lot of his teammates were asking and they're curious about it. Is this really interesting to, to see how the public responded with, you know, the, the, the stories of, of, of the medicines and, and how they uh, are perceived. And there's just a lot of uh, ignorance out there around it. And I think a part of it is guys like himself stepping up and being a voice. And I know it can't be easy taking on the backlash that comes with that. Uh, I know he's got a good support system. I'm really grateful he's connected with Aubrey now. And, and uh, you know, it's cool that he's continuing to play because part of, you know, going through those medicine journeys is, uh, and I, I can see it and feel it in his energy. And I went through it too. Is like, uh, why am I playing football? Like, what was the point of this? And for him to continue playing, even through what he's going through with transitioning te- teams and stuff, you know, I'm excited for the Jets. Uh, I think it's a real, real opportunity for them. And just to speak to that, I mean, I played for the Buccaneers my last couple of years and they had a really, really good team, really young team. And then Tom Brady came in and what they were missing was that, that leadership at that position can really change the entire organization. So I'm really excited to see what he can do because every single person that is around them, even in practice, they're all going to up their game because they're playing with one of the the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. And so there's just something that that elevates everybody's game and to have a young solid core nucleus team uh, and then to plug in him and a few other pieces. I think you guys are really going to do some, do some damage this year, which is exciting. Yeah. Well, Fingers crossed, man. You know, it's been, it's been, it's been a rough life of being a Jet fan, but you know, without, without making it all about sports, uh, I just see from the outside looking in, cause I, I've been an athlete, but never made anywhere close to the professional level. I, I can see and appreciate the opportunity that's there to really mold and shape the next generation of men. So somebody like myself, who is so desperate to create a stronger, more guided, more resourced generation of men coming up behind us. I'm like, man, even, I mean, for example, Aaron Rodgers, we just spoke about, but I think about LeBron James, you know, if LeBron James were to go and have a darkness retreat or an ayahuasca experience, everybody in the, across the world is going to be curious about what he's doing. And sure. I love that you acknowledge Aaron Rodgers for having the courage to be one of those men who goes for it. Cause he's a smart guy. Clearly he knew what he was doing by sharing that and what he was inviting into his life, but just sports in general. And I think of the armed services and, and these other organizations where you have, get a lot of men together. There's such a great opportunity to, to shape and mold young men and the future leaders. So mm. What do you see just from your perspective, your own personal journey into what you do now? What, what's, what's required or what's the opportunity to bring new perspectives into that world? Yeah. Yeah. The world's ready for a new type of role model, a new type of leader, a new type, a new definition of what it means to be a man. You know, when you were talking about uh, LeBron James, you know, I, I see these top athletes and it's very interesting that, you know, they take on you know, it's a, they're, they're plugged into a system and a paradigm that is the, is the issue is the problem. And, you know, someone like Aaron Rodgers is beginning to break out of that looks like an outcast, looks like an outlier. And, and a lot of people that aren't ready for that will either turn their backs on them or ridicule or create some type of narrative and story. Uh, but what that does do is it gets a lot of people curious. I'm sure LeBron James heard that Aaron Rodgers did it and 
you know, there's other NBA players that are starting to to dive into the medicine, maybe they're former players. But, you know, one of the things with that is like, you know, LeBron James, you know, being sponsored by like something like Mountain Dew or these like big companies and these corporations. And they, the, I mean, I guarantee that LeBron James is not drinking Mountain Dew because it's so unhealthy for you. It's literally poison. And, you know, we need to start making shifts like that. We need to get these these role models, these athletes to be like, actually, I, I don't I don't stand for that. And it's hard because when the incentive structure of our, the foundation of our society and culture is built on, on money and the incentive structure is like, how, how am I going to get paid more money? And then they write these big checks for these big corporations. They know what they're doing. They're using the, the brand and the, the role model to sell, you know, their product. And so I think part of the thing is, is as we shift, it's not necessarily about just doing plant medicine, but it's like, what does health actually look like? And how do I actually start embodying more, more healthy and promoting more healthy things to, to our youth? Because there's plenty of people that drink Mountain Dew just because LeBron James is the face of it. And, you know, he's not the only athlete, athlete like that. There's a lot of athletes and I, I know it's just a, you know, an ignorance or an unawareness. And I think, you know, really starting to look at that type of stuff will, will be, because I, I, I agree, man, like the, and this is why I'm so excited about working with athletes because athletes are the role models. They're the people that, that our society and culture look up to in a very big way. And uh, I think it is an access point to, to really facilitate great change in the world. And, you know, it's what I'm really passionate about. I'm actually going to speak to the Jacksonville Jaguars rookie class next week. And I'm going to be teaching them about the power of the breath and nervous system regulation and, and emotional awareness and these things that I wish I had when I first started playing. And so it's not even about plant medicine or getting really like spiritual and kind of woo-woo out here. It's There's these grounded tools that can help people navigate the challenges of life in a very accessible and grounded way. And, you know, this is stuff that we should teach our youth. I mean, it's fascinating. The two things that are the most important thing as, as any adult knows is financial literacy and emotional intelligence. And it's two things I never learned in school. Nope. So when you look at that, you're like, of course, like, is there some type of conspiracy here? Like, why would they not teach that? And I, I don't know necessarily if that's true. I think it's just because the leaders and role models and the people creating those programs don't have the tools themselves. So why would they think that that's important? And so, you know, I think it's, it's very simple. I think teaching people to breathe, teaching people to regulate themselves and, uh, and really integrating some of these more, uh, deeper processes into our society and culture is really what's needed. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I've gone down the conspiracy route myself before too. And I I'm sure that there's humans don't do anything by accident. So I'm sure there is motivation and awareness around certain systems that have been put into place, but I also don't think it's completely nefarious. I think it's somewhere in the middle that, yeah, I mean, financially intelligent and emotionally intelligent people on this planet would make for a much different society. And it being the way it is, is certainly advantageous to certain people. That's, that's just reality. But like cool thing to look at too, is like the ability for humans to adapt, to change. I look at the world and I find it, I'm just really blown away at, at the, the scale of cooperation that we, we as a, as a human race, I mean, the globalization, like the systems and processes of corporations and how they interact and how they, you know, have factories over here and they buy product over here and online and the internet. It's like really fascinating to just really feel into that. And so I'm really inspired. I think a lot of people in, in the day and age we live in is there's a lot of fear that comes up of the potentialities of destruction and chaos. And that's very real concern, but there's also a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration with our ability as we start waking up and not waking up into some like, 
doesn't need to be some like oh, a transcendent experience. It's it's waking up to the the realities of we're all we're all in this together. We're all humans. We're all much more alike than we are different. How do I regulate myself and understand that you know it's my own reaction to things that is getting me in trouble? If I can really find stillness and presence and compassion, then I can move through life with more ease and grace. And more people, especially in leadership positions, that start waking up to that reality, they can start integrating that energy into the culture of business and and the leadership and you know the athletes and kind of the people we look up to. I think that everything can change really rapidly and quickly. And that that inspires me. I think that's really cool to 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 bring that into the conversation of it doesn't have to be this total destruction of an old system, but we can really shift things on a dime with our abilities, which is really cool to think about. Oh yeah. I'm I'm glad you said that, man. It actually makes me think of a story that one of my mentors taught me a long time ago. Have you ever heard of the story of the hundredth monkey? No. I'd okay, like cool. So I'll share it with you. I'll share it with the people who are listening. Yeah. So ba- the, the basics of it are that there were these scientists that were observing this species of monkeys on an isolated island. And the island was, there were basically two separate islands that had a waterway that was impassable. So there was the same species of monkeys on two separate pieces of land in the same region. And what they noticed is that there was this type of potato or root vegetable on the island that the monkeys would eat. And they would observe the monkeys eating these root vegetables and they would get like, they would fall and they would kind of get covered in sand from the beach. And so, you know, for however long they were observing them, they would kind of like eat the sandy vegetable. And then one day, one of the monkeys, I I think they had a name for, I don't remember the name for this monkey, realized that they could wash the vegetable off in the water and then they would eat it and it'd be a more pleasant experience. And then they observed that more of these monkeys on the island over time were starting to do the same thing. They were, they would start what they were learning, right? They were learning and adapting. And then it was, I don't know if it was exactly a hundred, but that's the narrative is that the hundredth monkey, once the hundredth monkey on this one island was starting to do this spontaneously without contact, the monkeys on the other island started to do the same thing. So it's like this phenomenon of like, well, how did that happen? They didn't observe it. They didn't see it, but all of a sudden something clicked and they call the phenomenon now the hundredth monkey, where there's a critical mass point that as a collective, at some point, once we do the same, do the same thing, or it starts to become woven into our culture, it just permeates and kind of hockey sticks into that influence. And so I, that came up in my mind, because we talk about this a lot in reintroducing rites of passage into our communities. I like to say it fell off the boat when our ancestors came to wherever we live now. Many of us just lost that way for one reason or another. I wonder for you, what is that critical mass point for the medicine work, for rites of passage work, for everything that you're leading and talking about becoming the norm in the professional sports world and beyond? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I, I like to put some numbers on it here, it's like 10%, 15% of the population starts going down this path. And then it's kind of that critical mass. And you know, I have I have no idea. And I'm just showing up in in you know, answering the call of what's on my heart and knowing that there's a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, one of my mentors that I learned from, it's he, he's he's been studying uh, Carl Jung for the last 35 years. And Carl Jung, what he's famous for is coming up with the concept of the collective unconscious, which is kind of what you're speaking to is there's, there's some type of underlying intelligence uh, in our psychological makeup that is, you know, some some underlying field that connects us all and it's cool that you they, they observe this in these monkeys as well 
And, uh, you know, they, I think they studied a bunch of different ancient cultures and how they all started like building pyramids at the same time and around the same time and different mythologies and different symbolism showing up all around the world in these different ancient cultures where they had no way to stay in contact. They didn't have planes and stuff back then. And so it kind of goes to the same concept. There's something that is working through and underlying this experience and I'm 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 a, an internal optimist. I think this is like one of the best times in human history to be alive. I, I believe we get an opportunity to to really facilitate this this great awakening, this great shift in consciousness. And um, you know, there's there's a reason. Like the there, you know, I, I look at this and it's, you know, I guess the the natural question is like, why is there so much suffering? Why is the world the way it is? And the way I look at it is, it's it's a beautiful opportunity for us to experience courage, to experience purpose, to experience compassion. And, you know, I, I truly believe that uh, the creator, God, whatever you want to call this, this experience that created uh, this opportunity to be alive. One of the favorite emotions that God really connects with, in my opinion, has to be courage. Otherwise, why would there be any resistance? Why would fear exist? Fear exists for so we have an opportunity to experience what courage is like. If if we were in like a utopia, a enlightened society, there and there was no fear, then we wouldn't experience courage. I mean, it would be a great experience. It would be a different experience. But for some reason, we chose to be here during this time so that we can experience courage. And when I see somebody stepping into their courage, it's one of the most inspiring things for me to witness because I know what it takes to do that. And um, it's it's just really really beautiful to connect with it from that perspective. Oh, I, I love what you're sharing here, man, because it's there's there's so much alignment. And I, I want to make sure we sit have enough time to talk about your your the project you have, the retreat center you have. Um, from my understanding, there's regenerative agriculture happening as part of that. Tell us more about the vision. Where did that come from for you? And 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 I guess just tell us what's the purpose and the direction of that. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Uh it's interesting, you know, when I feel like there's this collective download that's happening in the world right now. I'm sure you can connect with a lot of people in our communities that are feeling this, this calling back to earth, this calling back to the mother, this calling back to what it means to be connected to our, our own food and to be in right relations with, with the, the, the natural world. And you know, one of the biggest problems that we face is this deep separation from from mother earth and separation from self separation from each other. And, you know, uh, during the pandemic, it was, it was, I had oppor these opportunities to, I was looking for, to buy some property either in Colorado or here in Austin. And so me and my partner were looking at land and we were just having, we had uh, a real estate agent just kind of sending us land uh, for like eight months and we weren't like moving on it. We we're just kind of taking tabs on what's available. And we looked at some stuff in Colorado and just didn't really, feel the call. And so when we came back, this was like two years ago, a year and a half ago, uh, we started like, okay, let's, this one property came through and we're like, we got to go look at this one. This one feels really good. And we literally went out there and right when we stepped on the land, we both looked at each other and we did both just knew like, this is the spot. And so we didn't, we didn't go look at a bunch of properties. It was like this, this, this piece of property, it's like called us, called us to it. And, you know, part of my journey has always been really trusting the the calling of my heart and decided to, to buy it. Uh, it's definitely been a, a project of, of really, you know, there was a couple structures on it. There's a six bedroom retreat house that's kind of run down. And so we've been in this process of remodeling it. 
And over the last like year and a half, and just very recently over the last couple of months, we've been like really connecting with it in a deeper way. And it's a process that's continuing to unfold. And my partner, Sarah, he, she's getting really into permaculture and uh, regenerative farming and really understanding. We both just got done with this, this, uh, this, this, this detox cleanse uh, that was like a gut reset. And I work with one of my friends who shout out to Megan. She, uh, she's really taught me a lot about how much toxins are in our environment or in our food, all the glyphosate, all the, like the, 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 par- the, uh, uh, all of the stuff they're like spraying on the crops and then understanding that, you know, the parasites that live within us, I'm getting like a little bit of education on that and how they feed off toxins in this toxic environment. And even like organic foods have uh, like glyphosate in it because of it's just in the air, it's in our water because of our farming systems and our, the monocrops. And so just like getting into the deeper layers of how our society and structure and food systems are all built has been this, you know, another layer of, of awakening. And then it's like, how many layers to the onion are there? I feel like I'm accessing another deeper layer and, you know, my own spiritual path, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk around like spirituality and it's like kind of new age movement of, you know, what abundance is like and calling in financial resources and creating. And, you know, I've, I'm finding that a lot of it is still stuck in this old paradigm. And, you know, I don't think there's anything like wrong with that. But what I'm starting to realize is, is my own spiritual connection is like, what does it mean to be a spiritual being? And I'm starting to realize the only way to really find that deeper connection is, is being in right relation with Mother Nature. And that's understanding where your food's coming from and understanding the the, the relationship of, of growing food and, and the soil. And, you know, I think that's where we need to get to to really make and facilitate real change in the world. Uh, and until we get there, I don't think it's, I think it's all kind of like smoke and mirrors. Um, but luckily there's a lot of people, you know, here in Austin, a lot of people I'm connected with, I'm sure you're the same way where we're all showing up and we're learning, we're relearning, we're remembering what it, what it means to to be in right relation. And I think that's a path that is, is going to take a while. Uh, but I think it's a really beautiful opportunity for us to, to remember and then to integrate all these amazing technologies we have and create this potential for this age of abundance that we've never really experienced on this earth. And I, I think that's really, really exciting, but it's going to take a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of courage and a lot of uh, letting go of, of old ideas of what we think life should be like. And man, it's a lot of distance to cover in one lifetime. I share a very similar vision as you. Um, I, I remember even before my first semester as a freshman in college, I met two of my, be- who would become my best friends in the world. We met when we were 17 and 18 years old. And we're still best friends to this day. And from the moment we met, we started to talk about, well, one day when we're older and we have a fam- families, we'll raise our kids together on land. And we were 17, 18 years old. And we were all growing up in the New York City suburbs. So it wasn't like we had some you know, experience with this. There was just that, like you said, that collective consciousness within us that we recognized in each other. And we went through so many experiences over the past 18 years now that have really bonded us as, as family. And we all have children. And we actually just got back from a wedding this past weekend in, in Albuquerque where we brought all of our kids together and they're they're like siblings, you know. And so we and we've lived on land together. When I lived in California, we actually were on 12 acres and raising kids together. And so everything you're saying about agriculture, right relation with the planet, that feels like the most important legacy for me to leave behind for my children, for my nieces, for my nephews. I, I don't know if there's something more valuable 
that I can give to my children and to the next generation. So that's, that's a huge part that's woven in to initiating purpose-driven leaders. Just speaking about here in Rising Man is also, we, I actually haven't said this anywhere yet. The first time we've been playing around with adding um, purpose-driven leaders and stewards of the new earth onto that mm. because it's, it's become more and more clear over the past five years that, well, that's, that's really what's being asked for. And so it's, it's so cool to hear what, what you're listening as well. Cause I I've found that too, that there is a, a depth of listening that seemingly spontaneously is happening for many of us all at the same time. Oh man, that's really beautiful. And that's, that's what I've been, been really working on within myself is, is deeper listening. And uh, it's, it's a challenge, man. We live in a field of influence that's always always you know there's a, there's a collective frequency especially living in the city and there's being around kind of what what the what the society and culture is telling us we need to do and i i get lost and oscillate always between you know during this transitional period it's it's hard it's like am i crazy is this what i'm supposed to be doing is can i create a living doing this and what does it look like uh and, and do, can i create safety for me and my family within this and and so just continuing to trust. And that's, I mean, that's another aspect of courage is courage to, to listen to the voice and understanding the, how spirit communicates to us through the nervous system and being able to trust that. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful journey. And I'm really grateful for, for allies like you. And the, you know, I feel like the universe is bringing, bringing people together in a really beautiful way who are, are like-minded and, that's one thing that's shifting with this great, great shift we're moving through in this great transition is, you know, it can feel overwhelming and daunting, but the cool thing is we don't have to do it alone and we're all coming together in, in a beautiful way and, and supporting each other. And, and I think that's what it's all about. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Well, as we're getting close to a time to wrap this up, uh, I would just love to hear your personal vision. I know that you're uh, a new father. You got a, a, almost three-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old little boy. Um, how has your perspective and your vision clarified by becoming a father for the first time? I'm sure there's a noticeable shift there. Talk about a rite of passage, right? Yeah, what an initiation that is. Holy uh -huh. cow. Uh, I think one thing that will teach you how to be a man is, is becoming a father. And I'm learning so much from the little guy. You know, I think we talked about before the show that the first year, first two years is is a real true initiation. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of friends in my community who have been having kids uh, recently as well and around the same time. And one thing I see circling back to, to my journey through football and my ability to handle uncomfortable situations and, and being able to push myself uh, through discomfort uh, really bode well, uh, helped me build a foundation for being able to navigate that first year or two of being a father because obviously lack of sleep shifting in routine showing up uh, even when i'm really tired or i'm activated and i just i don't want to be here but like being able to see through that and regulate myself to support my wife support my kid uh, and be present in that in those situations uh, having the foundation of being a professional athlete really helped me a lot in that first year and i saw some of my friends who hadn't gone through a, the depth of uh experience of, of tr like training themselves in that way and how they got thrown off uh, a lot easier. And, uh, you know, we all have our own lessons, uh, but I think that's, that's one of the things I learned is like being able to navigate the challenges of life with an open heart, 
with love, with presence and being able to regulate ourselves is like so important. And uh, I'm just getting to a point now where I'm like deeply connecting with my son and I'm so grateful about the journey forward. I'm so excited about raising him and, and teaching him and, you know, talked about my father beginning of the show. And, you know, one of the things when I left high school, I, I promised myself uh, that when I have a son, if I have a son, uh, I want to be able to share from a place of experience what the world's like. And that led me on the journey that I went on. And I went out into the world and I experienced life as much as I could. And I'm really grateful for that because now I can alchemize that into uh, sharing that with my son, what the world's like. And, you know, it's kind of full circle to what we're talking about. It, it, in, in, in order to, to really know and to, to bring forth uh, wisdom to share with the younger generations, you first have to have the courage to go answer the call of your own initiation, your own rite of passage, your own quest into the world. And what I'm learning as well is a lot of, you know, in our society and culture, a lot of parents, they, they maybe missed an opportunity to achieve their dreams. And so they project onto their kids what they lacked to pursue in their own life because that I, I didn't do it, but you have a chance to do it. So I'm going to I'm going to try and get every everything in your power, in my power to make your life successful. And what that does for a kid is it makes them feel like you're living someone else's dream. And I read somewhere before, before Luca was born uh, that, you know, in order to inspire our kids, the only way to do it is not to, to, to project our own dreams onto them for them, but to go passionately pursue our own calling, our own purpose and in that process, have them witness what it's like to, to to see their parents confront what it takes to really go go after something and the challenges and the hardship and confronting fear and moving through that and sharing those lessons as you're going through it with a kid that's witnessing and being so open to what you're actually embodying. That's how we inspire kids to go after their own dreams. And you know that's mm -hmm. what I'm doing now. And um, and there's a lot of work to be done and I'm really, really excited about the opportunities that are ahead. That's beautiful, Joe. Um, uh, before we start to wrap it up, there was one more question I wanted to ask earlier. I forgot. I wonder, are there any notable coaches or teammates you had, especially at the professional level who just, they gave you that special dose of what you needed at that time? Um, as a, when you were as a professional athlete, still very much in that world and, and not having the, the path that you had post your professional career. I wonder, is there anybody who stands out and why? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot of coaches in my life that had powerful impacts on my life all through each level of football. Um, a guy in the NFL that I really enjoyed playing for was Mike Tice. He was the head coach for the Vikings at one point. He played 15 years in the NFL as a tight end. So he was a he understood what it was like to be a player and then he became a coach and he came in for a single year when I was with the Falcons and it was a year I, I my fifth year I finally earned the starting job and kind of had this fresh start and he was somebody that understood what it takes to be a player I was a very undersized offensive lineman and you know some coaches they want it done a certain way uh, and they don't really include you in the process of what the game plan is mm -hmm. and what I loved about Mike was he was he was always like, Hey Joe, like, how are you going to attack this guy? What's your game plan? What do you, what are you thinking? You know, if they do this, he, he really included me, honored me, respected my process, which made me feel very heard, listened to respected, which made me want to play even harder for him. Uh, unfortunately, four games into that season, I blew my knee out and only got to play with them for four games. 
Um, but that was, it really left a mark on me the way he showed up. And, uh, you know, when he, when he yelled at me and told me I wasn't doing something right, I respected him because I knew that he meant it because when, and then when he honored me and he, he praised me, I knew he meant it too. And so it was this, I had coaches on the other end of the spectrum where they would just like yell at you. And you just like, I, I was like, I don't, you yell at me all the time. Like, I don't know if I'm doing it right, doing it wrong. Um, so I really, really enjoyed playing for, for Mike Tice, although it was a very short time. Mm, that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad that you painted that picture of, of what some of that mentorship in, in the NFL can look like. Cause to me, that's just an example of, of the best type of fathering, right? I, I, I hear that he was giving, he was enrolling you and involving you in critical problem solving, right? Obviously we're mm-hmm. talking about football right now, but just bringing a young person along and helping them to come up with solutions to their own problems instead of just telling them how it should be done and reprimanding them if they don't do it a certain way. I think that's a really strong model for fathering and parenting, even not in the biological sense, just, you know, mentoring, mentoring someone as they learn and grow in this world. So that was a great example to, to share there, man. Thank you. Oh, thanks brother. Yeah. Um, so man, I have so many more questions, but we'll, we'll just save it for chapter two <laughs> for another time. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with the lightning round real quick and then we'll send you off. Okay. All right. So first question, what's one thing you've learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were 18? Not to take it too seriously. (laughs) Be, Be present. Love that. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? An open heart. Last one. What does the world need most from men right now? open heart, but I'll, I'll expand. Uh, a desire to know thyself and the ability to, the ability to let go of, of the, of the triggers of the feeling like wronged, you know, the, the desire to defend oneself to to hold an open heart and to find compassion and to to be present and witness not only what's happening in your inner world but being able to hold those you love uh with an open heart i think is 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 what we're the path we're all on and it's deep work and when you get to that point it's really changes everything i love that last but not least joe where can people go to follow your journey to hear more about the community that you're creating if you want to direct people that way just give us all the details yeah thanks brother instagram's probably the easiest joe.holly and i have a podcast called life beyond the game uh where i bring on elite athletes to talk about their transition so if you're interested in uh, that is they're really amazing conversations long format and uh very emotionally captivating um i got the the heart collective that's h-a-r-t the heartcollective.com is the community i'm building for high impact leaders entrepreneurs visionaries uh, it's a year-long program where I think accepting applications is not for much longer, uh, but check that out. And um, yeah, if you go to Instagram, you can follow my newsletter as well. I put out some good content there. Awesome, Joe. Well, hey man, another shout out and thank you to your team for connecting us and, and putting us together. I, I love knowing that you're here in Austin and I really look forward to uh, to building together with you, man, and learning more and witnessing more of the work that you're doing in the world because I just think it's so important and I'm glad that there's a man like you with the background experience you have that can lead that charge. 
Thanks, brother. That means a lot. Really appreciate you. And I look forward to deepening our connection in the near future. Likewise, my man. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Joe. I really had a wonderful experience getting to connect with him. So if you like it, make sure you share it around. Thank you all for your ongoing support of the Rising Man movement. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.